Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Glad you are here for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Grab your stool. Yes, we have another good martini today. Good, bad, and crazy. And uh, Jim, great find by you on the good martini. Everybody's looking for positive ways to, to look at how people are responding to the coronavirus threat. And boy, kudos to the Washington Post for highlighting this story. I'm sure others have it as well. But uh, let's just read it. At his factory just off the Delaware River, in the far southeastern corner of Pennsylvania, Joe Boyce clocked in on March 23rd for the longest shift of his life. In his office, an air mattress replaced his desk chair. He brought a toothbrush and shaving kit, moving into the Brascom Petrochemical Plant in Marcus Hook, Pennsylvania, as if it were a makeshift college dormitory. The casual office kitchen became a mess hall for him and his 42 co-workers turned into roommates. The factory's emergency operations center became their new lounge room. For 28 days, they did not leave, sleeping and working all in one place. In what they call a live-in at the factory, the undertaking was just one example of the endless ways that Americans in every industry have uniquely contributed to fighting coronavirus. The 43 men went home Sunday after each working 12-hour shifts all day and night for a month straight, producing tens of millions of pounds of the raw materials that will end up in face masks and surgical gowns worn on the front lines of the pandemic. No one told them they had to do it, Brascom America CEO Mark Nikolic said. All the workers volunteered, hunkering down at the plant to ensure no one caught the virus outside as they sought to meet the rocketing demand for their key product, polypropylene, which is needed to make various medical and hygienic items. Brascom's plant in Neal, West Virginia is doing a second live-in now. Jim, there's going above and beyond, and then there's these guys doing literally everything they can do for this country. Yeah, and I think that in addition to, first of all, God bless each and every last one of these guys. I hope that in addition to getting a copious raise <laughs> for all of the extraordinary overtime they've been putting in, um, you know, they probably deserve some sort of proclamation from the state, people in their communities. Hey, you know what? You pick up the check for them. You know, next round's on you after if you see any of these guys uh, when we're all allowed to be out and about again. Maybe even a presidential proclamation or award or something like that. These are the kind of people who deserve to be mentioned in the State of the Union address and things like that. I'm reminded of another example. It was an, it was an anecdote, I think, by Peggy Noonan talking about life in New York City after 9-11. And we'd heard about, uh, obviously, the enormous toll on the city of when the towers collapsed. We heard about the firefighters, police officers, uh, emergency medical services, everybody who was there and on scene and who suffered uh, enormous losses and who had demonstrated just, you know, unimaginable courage that day. But when the immediate crisis was done, the problems remained and, and in fact, dangerous work still remained. And so once, you know, the immediate crisis of, of the collapse and, and fires and things like that had stopped, there was this giant pile of wreckage at ground zero that needed to be cleared out. And it was, a, you know, cleaning up wreckage is a very dangerous work. If you don't do it correctly, you can end up uh, with further collapse and injuries and things like that. And you were often trying to collect human remains amongst all that stuff. So basically this turned to construction workers um, who had the job of deconstructing. And I think it was uh, the, the Atlantic magazine did this fascinating piece about how the effort to remove all of the wreckage that had fallen in lower Manhattan was really an engineering effort almost on par with the original construction of the World Trade Center in the first place. And, you know, particularly for those first couple of weeks after it, 
all of these dump trucks and all these big trucks who come along, you know, doing this. And the guys who were reporting for duty on this, people used to stop and they would line up on the side of the street and people would applaud. And you could see it in the face, Peggy Noonan describes it being in the faces of these guys. Nobody had applauded for them since probably their wedding day. You know, this, this idea that we don't spend a lot of time, you know, giving roars and cheers to construction workers. We used to, you know, walk by the construction site, maybe we peek in over the fence and that's about it. And the lesson of this is that whatever your job is, whatever you do in society, you have no idea when, all, when in some sort of set of circumstances, what you do could suddenly be really, really important. It could have life and death consequences, or at the very least, have an enormous impact on the quality of life and the, uh, the rest of society's ability to handle, a, uh, to respond to a crisis. Pizza delivery guys right now are doing a little bit of that. Food delivery guys, grocery store workers. We have so many tiny little acts of heroism going on all around us. And one of the things I hope not only at this particular moment, but I hope moving forward, we, we continue to appreciate that. We continue to salute that, recognize that. And yes, appreciate that. Like I said, maybe all these people deserve a little bit of a raise. Maybe they picked up that next round, little bonuses here and there for good for job well done. Um, but again, thank you for the New York, to the uh, Washington Post for spotlighting this. I think it was a local television station that first did this. Look, we need to recognize the million little heroes around us you and I can enjoy laughing at the, you know, idiots on the beach um, or, or, you know, all these other folks who are doing something stupid and who, who frustrate us. Uh, all in all, you know, there are, you know, the, I, I genuinely believe, you know, all around the world, particularly in America, people do want to help. And when given the opportunity, they will rise to the occasion. And so it's wonderful. We need to hear more about stories like this. All right, let's move on to our bad martini now, Jim. And uh, I don't know if we need to co start calling Thursdays Black Thursday or Bloody Thursdays here, but every Thursday is when we get these weekly jobless claims, and it just keeps getting uglier. Uh, the Labor Department reporting that the number of Americans applying for state unemployment benefits totaled 4.427 million last week. Combined with the prior four jobless claims reports, the number of Americans who have filed for unemployment over the last five weeks alone is 26.45 million. That is now more than 4 million jobs lost than have been gained since the end of the Great Recession. So November 2009 till basically March of this year, the economy had added 22.4 million jobs. Now we've lost 26.45. And just to put that into perspective, that number bigger than the population of every state in the country except for California and Texas. So imagine everyone in Florida or everyone in Ohio or Pennsylvania, in some cases, combining states, everybody out of a job. It's hard to even be hyperbolic about this. It's really, really horrific. Yeah. And when we recognized how much our economy was going to have to shut down for a while, we could kind of say, okay, this is, you know, and I had said on our podcast, well, okay, look, the good news is this is, you know, the issue is it's a health problem. It's a, it's a health crisis. It's a health crisis. It's forcing us to, forcing us to self-quarantine and we can't interact with each other the way we usually do. And that's, what's causing the deep-rooted economic effects, but there's nothing inherently wrong with our economy. Uh, our banks did not make a whole bunch of crazy loans. I had originally said it's not like we had a crisis in oil prices. What I was thinking was the 1970s style, you know, <laughs> sudden spike in oil prices, not a sudden calamitous collapse in oil prices. That all in all, this was not um, some sort of giant issue of our economy allocating resources to a bad situation. Um, what we see, you know, when you fix the health issue, then, you know, everybody's economic activity will return back to normal. And all of a sudden you'd see the economy bounce right back up. 
Well, <laughs> each week this goes on, the people who lose their businesses, the people who lose their jobs, well, they're eating through their savings, which takes away their discretionary income, which means they can't go out to a restaurant when this is done as often as they used to. They can't go on vacation. They can't buy that plane ticket. They can't go on that cruise. They can't stay in a hotel. Um, all these sorts of things, portions of our economy, particularly the service economy, they're run by discretionary income, depend upon people having discretionary income. And uh, unemployment benefits, you know, they, they help you get through, but they generally don't leave you with a lot of money for uh, discretionary income. Um, people are able to thrive and prosper when they work and they collect a paycheck and they get raises and bonuses, like we mentioned in that previous podcast, uh, previous martini. And, you know, you're able to do that. Each week, this continues, extends not just like the rate of a V-shaped um, or U-shaped uh, uh, recovery, where you're suddenly zooming right back up to the top, becomes less likely. The J-shaped or other V-shaped, the idea of it being a more slower and gradual recovery, I think becomes more likely. And that's, that's really bad. It's really bad if you're hoping for a President Trump's re-election. That's really bad if you're hoping for the state of the country. That's very bad if you're hoping for all kinds of societal effects from uh, suicides to depression, to alcoholism, to drug abuse, to, uh, to homelessness, to poverty, to malnutrition, you know, you name it. People are, you know, facing uh, all kinds of, you know, bad effects of this economy. And now that I think, you know, perhaps the, the, the little cherry on top of this bad martini uh, is the, the assessment that the good news is, like I said, Congress just passed that, that you know, latest relief bill. It's probably going to be enough to cover everyone who applied in the first round of business, small business loans, support loans, who didn't get them. So basically, Congress completed its makeup work. It did not actually provide any much capacity to expand uh, the number of people who could get small business or other forms of assistance. Really frustrating, really bad. This is not something that can be uh, continued over and over again, Greg. At some point, we got to start sending people back to work in some capacity, the safest way possible, uh, in order to get them building things, uh, generating things, manufacturing things, and actually able to buy things so our economy can get moving again. You talked about this yesterday, not on the podcast, but you've written about it, uh, that we have to re-engage, but we have to re-engage intelligently. We obviously have the uh, criteria set out by the task force and the three phases of, of re-emerging, but uh, what are some of the, the key points that, that you were writing about in terms of the intelligent way to, to do this? First of all, everyone out there, I hope you by now you've got a mask or you can think about where you can get one or you're in the, in the one is on its way to you, maybe in the mail. Um, and you're probably going to be wearing that mask for a good long time. It is not going to be, uh, you know, you may not like it. It may be very weird. It may be very ominous to walk down the street and see everyone wearing masks, but that's probably what you're going to have to do. Um, as I've been making the point in grocery stores, it, you know, the process of shopping is not dangerous by what you're buying despite what Governor Whitmer might think. Uh, <laughs> the danger comes from the interaction with other people. So if you're wearing a mask, the good news is it probably makes it less likely. And I hear people saying, well, masks don't provide perfect uh, protection. Yeah, you know, the idea, is it completely around your face? Are you adjusting it? You know, uh, is, it going to, is it going to give you 100% protection? No. Will it give you more protection? Yes. And for everybody out there who said, I thought masks don't do any good. Do you think the doctors and health professionals are wearing them for decoration? No. They're wearing it because they provide at least some protection. You might want to think about wearing gloves. Uh, and obviously at home, you got to wash the gloves or, or put them in some place. The virus can last on certain materials for you know, a certain number of hours. 
Um, wash it soap and wash your gloves with soap and water. Wash your hands with soap and water. You're probably going to be fine. Uh, as you go into stores, you're probably going to go in, get your stuff, and get out. <laughs> you're probably not going to want to dilly dally. You're probably not going to want to um, linger uh, or, or spend any more time in the presence of large uh, large groups of people. The idea of limiting the number of people in a store probably makes a lot of sense. I think what really is nagging at me, and a problem, there are two two areas we have not really thought through how to do this in a safe way. In restaurants and bars, there's that study, it came out of China, and I don't know if it's 100% right, but the gist is air conditioning and other ventilation systems can spread viruses all around a, a room. You know, if you are, have the virus, yes, it comes out when you're coughing or sneezing, um, but it also comes out as you're breathing and as you're speaking. Now, it doesn't come out as far, and obviously, you know, given a choice between somebody talking near me and somebody sneezing on me, I know exactly which one I'm, you know, a little less worried about. But basically, if you, you know, the idea of, for a long time, I've been saying, okay, you do it every other booth or something like that. Some people think you might need even more spaced out seating to make it safe. Maybe we're going to go back to, you know, you know what, we could end up with a lot of people picnicking in parks and, uh, and, and beer gardens and, and stuff like that. People really spread out as they do this. Uh, open spaces like beaches and parks, I think the evidence is, is that as long as you're social distancing, try to keep six feet from people, um, the better off you're going to be. Uh, so at least people could go out and enjoy that. Uh, factories and assembly lines, again, you're going to have to think about how close are people going to be? Are they going to be wearing gloves? Are they going to be wearing, you want everybody wearing masks? Generally, we want to try to avoid breathing on each other. <laughs> and assuming that you've got like a six feet radius around you, how much can you minimize your interaction with that? Um, there's probably nothing that's going to be uh, perfect, but uh, you know, the, the you know, keeping waiting for perfect protection would mean we would never reopen our economy. We need to figure out an acceptable level of risk. And as I said, using lots of personal protection, washing your hands all every chance you get, um, all of that stuff is probably going to uh, make things a you know a weird America, not quite, a, certainly not a return to normal America, but um, a. Uh, a, a, you know, it's something where at least we can get our economy moving on some level uh, to end this downspin and to get us something to build the road towards a better recovery, down, you know, uh, at some point in the future. So my two big takeaways from what you just said, Jim, is there's going to be a big uptick in alfresco dining. And secondly, you're going to want to stay away from people like Niedermeyer and Animal House, particularly if you're inappropriately wearing your pledge pin. Is that about... Uh, <laughs> Look, if you have any antisocial uh, tendencies, the, the end of the lockdown doesn't mean you have to give that up. <laughs> if you want a reason to avoid people, you have a good reason to avoid people. Yes, that's true. And uh, one little silver lining here is that oil seems to be bouncing back to, to some extent. So that's happy news. Uh, on the more depressing side, Jim, uh, I don't know if you saw this today, but one county in Northern Virginia, it's not one where you or I live, but it's Loudoun County in Northern Virginia, uh, is already uh, looking at three different scenarios for starting up school in the fall. And one of them does not involve people actually in the buildings. So uh, they're, they're already conditioning parents that things might not be normal even in September. Well, Greg, here in Authenticity Woods, I believe the latest estimate is that the online learning system for this semester in spring should be ready by fall. <laughs> I see the uh, vice superintendent for tech resigned in your county, so I'm sure that's going well. <laughs> did, he, did, he, did he resign or did he just run out of town in a hurry? <laughs> Well, as a woman, I don't remember her there name. There was but, uh, a, a crowd, a socially distanced crowd of parents with pitchforks and torches <laughs> headed towards his home. So, all wearing masks. 
All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And this kind of is a, a follow-up to yesterday's crazy martini about how we thought that the first coronavirus-related death in the United States was late February, and it turns out it was in the first week of February. And now we're seeing other models, and yes, the models change a lot, so take this however you want to in terms of accuracy, but uh, it's uh, kind of reevaluating how far this virus had already spread as of the beginning of March. Uh, according to the New York Times, uh, looking at this northeastern model, in five major U.S. cities, as of March 1st, there were only 23 confirmed cases of coronavirus. But according to the model, there could have actually been about 28,000 infections in those cities by then. And that's, of course, two weeks before major mitigation went into effect. We're looking at Boston, Seattle, Chicago, San Francisco, and New York, which they believe New York had uh, nearly 11,000 cases already by the beginning of March. Uh, not sure of all the uh, algorithms that go into that. But again, Jim, if uh, things were uh, moving that much that early, uh, that is, again, uh, a different way to calculate where we are right now. Yeah. So this is this is our crazy martini. Uh, and let's, you know, in addition to yesterday's news that the first death uh, that can be attributed to the coronavirus in this country was February 6th, not February 20, 27th, 28th, something like that. Um, you know, pushes back the, the you know, the three weeks, our timeline of when this virus was floating around in the country. And because we cannot connect that case in California to anybody, that first case up in Seattle, which was in late January, now all of a sudden we're like, okay, maybe this virus was floating around sometime in, in certainly on the West Coast and maybe in a whole bunch of parts of the country um, or several parts of the country in early February, maybe early, maybe late January. Um, I don't know about you, Greg, I continue to encounter lots of people on social media uh, and people who are emailing in who are like, you know, Jim, I really had a really bad flu in November or December, who are very convinced that they had uh, coronavirus. Now, right now, my guess is no, I think that probably was a flu. Uh, we had a couple of people in my family had the flu. This was a bad flu season. A lot of people had the flu and it was really rough. Nonetheless, people are pretty convinced it was a coronavirus. And so now the February cases, I can't quite say, oh, pish posh, there's no way you had this. Um, I was pleased to see, again, things I don't often say, this is what makes it a crazy martini. Gavin Newsom said they want to uh, go back and do autopsies on cases going back several months in, in uh, California. I imagine the hospitals and doctor's offices know the people who succumb to pneumonia or to some other, has sudden, you know, a death that now looks a little bit odd in retrospect, that they now suspect, hey, wait a minute, maybe that person did drop dead at uh, a surprisingly young age, or their condition really did worsen a lot more than we'd expect from the flu. Let's, you know, and this is going to require disinterring bodies, might have to notify the families. I certainly hope people are cooperative with this. But this does uh, illuminate a great deal. This, so my first thought is, okay, maybe it was a couple of weeks. This from uh, Northeastern University, this is pretty mind-boggling. And in the sense that, you know, March 1st, uh, for perspective, I realize no one can tell what day it is anymore. Besides my usual joke of every day being Friday, Greg. <laughs> of those one person put it accurately since this quarantine began every day has been wednesday so we, we are now in the middle of week six and it really was middle of that you know right around march you know 9th 10th 11th 12th 13th 14th that's when this went from hey this is a really crazy thing happening in asia to whoa wait what's going on right this is when the nba announced they were spending the season tom hanks at his announce uh, announcement that he had tested positive uh, the president had his uh, Oval Office address, and at least in my neck of the woods, the last day of school was March 12th. That's where you had this sense of like, okay, well, this is really a crisis we're not used to dealing with. 
two weeks before that, this Northeastern model said that just in these five cities, Boston, Seattle, Chicago, San Francisco, and New York, that there were 28,000 infections. People walking around having it, coughing into their hands, touching the handrail, touching the elevator button, touching the ATM buttons, uh, including 10,000 in New York City. That seems really high from where I, you know, but I can't quite hand wave it away. Um, I, I hope the New York Times is not, this is right now front and center on the New York Times uh, uh, webpage. So, you know, at Northeastern University, it's not some, you know, uh, kooky fly-by-night, you know, uh, uh, university. You know, they, there's reason to think these people's models know what they're talking about. If so, and they're really worth, you know, tens of thousands of people walking around in March. Well, now the idea of this floating around in large numbers in February seems pretty plausible. The idea of maybe a bunch of people having it in January suddenly seems more plausible. The sort of thing that requires more study. And again, I prefer more biology and less statistics, if it's possible, to do this. Uh, this is where you wish we had just tons of testing. And we're probably going to be doing lots and lots of testing. But again, if this model shakes out, then the Santa Clara study and other folks who are saying, yeah, there are lots and lots of Americans walking around with antibodies who have already had this and dealt with this in the form of a winter cold. You know, if that's it, fantastic. That's knocking on wood. That's, you know, that would be great because I mean, we're a lot closer to herd immunity um, and we can be, feel a little more reassured about people uh, not succumbing to this virus. But uh, still some more research. But that was just the, like, you know, the, the, you know, wait, wait, can that possibly be right study of the day? Well, Jim, let's end on a happier note. And that's that the NFL draft is today. And you're wondering, how do you transition from the coronavirus to the NFL draft? Well, I can do it because I'm a Bears fan. And as you know, uh, we've talked about the travails of uh, Chicago Bears quarterback Mitch Trubisky uh, and his uh, lack of accuracy uh, over the past couple of years. I don't know if you saw this a couple of weeks ago. There was a pizza joint, I think in Chicago, that put out a sign that said, during this coronavirus outbreak, remember to remain at least 10 feet away from others. If you're wondering how far that is, picture a Bears wide receiver and then imagine where Trubisky actually threw the pass. That distance is about 10 feet. That was perfect. That was exactly, you know, uh, uh, one of the funnier moments and something definitely much needed. You know, look, look, it's nice to know Americans, and, you know, in particular Bears fans, still have their sense of humor <laughs> in the middle of all this. So we got the draft tonight. It's going to be, uh, it's gonna be uh, by technology. It's not going to be in a huge uh, theater like it normally is. Uh, there are still ways, apparently, to boo Roger Goodell, which is good. <laughs> uh, and it's going to go to charity. So that's always uh, very helpful. And so I'm just waiting for, uh, you know, the, the commissioner and the, the GM of the Bengals on that first pick to be like, what? Can, can you hear me? You're breaking up. I can't, I can't, I can't yeah. follow you along. So that could make things a little more fun. But, uh, you know, it's a new day, Jim. We talked about how the Patriots look a lot different yesterday. The Bears, of course, don't have a first round pick because they're still paying for Khalil Mack from a couple of years ago in that trade with the Raiders. But uh, we know Joe Burrow's going to have a big night. The Dolphins have three first round picks, at least right now. And uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those things where you have this terrible feeling that at some point, some team's going to try to announce their pick through a YouTube video. They'll put out the link. People, the link will go through. Everyone will click on it. And all we'll get is, never going to give you up. <laughs> never going to let you down. But as far as we know, everything will be fine. Booing Goodell from home won't quite be the same. Uh, it's interesting. You, you know, the only thing that this, this perhaps only gets interesting and uh, exciting after the first few, everybody thinks the Bengals are taking Joe Burrow, and I think it's pretty likely to happen. Everybody's pretty sure the Redskins are going to take Chase Young. The edge rusher seems like the safest pick. I don't buy any of this talk that they're thinking about Tua or any of these other quarterback options. A lot of people think they're going to be trades. And I got to tell you, Greg, 
My sense is if you're going to commit a big trade, you would have done it by now. You don't want to do this during the draft because, first of all, apparently the NFL did do a run-through and did have lots of glitches the first time. First of all, by the, like, a lot of people are like, ah, the NFL. Like, no, no, I'm glad they're doing this. Like, imagine if they'd done this for healthcare.gov. Imagine <laughs> if they'd done this for Fairfax County Public Schools, distance learning. For, you, know, you test these things to see how they work, and sometimes they don't work. And that gives you time to work out the bugs. But here's it. Let's imagine – your, your strategy tonight involves making some quick, you know, on the fly trades and handling lots of calls from lots of other teams. And, and you know, I just, you know, better hope your tech holds up. I, I think, you know, most teams, once, once the draft starts, I think everybody's going to be fairly pleased with what they've got and they're going to go through it. I don't think you're going to see a lot of wheeling and dealing tonight, but then again, I have been wrong. The Lions will take that cornerback, Jeff Akuda. Looks like a very solid one. A lot of questions about the Giants um, picking fourth. Now the rumors they want to go offensive tackle. I think they're going to go with Isaiah Simmons, that super-duper linebacker safety. I've also seen a lot of people say the Chargers, who, by the way, uh, Greg, I, I know you've, I've seen the Bears in their dark blue, almost black uniforms. Yes. I know I've seen them in that kind of orangey-red one, which I don't like as much, but fine, whatever. Right. But most teams now have two variations of their home uniforms and the white road uniforms. And yes, I know a lot of teams wear their white at home and other colored on the road. You know, it's not. The San Diego, I'm sorry, Los Angeles Chargers, showing my age there. <laughs> the Los Angeles Chargers have announced that they now have three different home colored jerseys. Um, that kind of powdered blue, a kind of a navy blue, and then a really dark blue uh, that's almost black. And I'm just like, first of all, I blame you, University of Oregon. <laughs> uh, for those who don't know, they're affiliated with Nike, and I guess they decide, and, and apparently Vogue magazine, I don't know, for whatever reason, University of Oregon's decided they never want to wear the same uniform twice. Some teams are workhorses, some teams have their identity as a show horse, and apparently University of Oregon is the, um, the clothes horse of the college football scene because they never wear the same uniform twice. Los Angeles Chargers now have four. Anyway, I figure they need a quarterback. I think they go with Justin is it Herbert or Hebert? Is it is he Cajun? I, I think it's Herbert. I, of course, always think of Bobby Hebert back in the day. But uh, there you I go. Think, like, I think in this case it's Herbert. I've been so conditioned to think of it as Hebert. Herbert, who's that? But you know, uh, figure they go quarterback. They need one. Philip Rivers has gone off to form his compound uh, <laughs> with his forty-seven children. By the way, we're talking about a guy who's been, t- you know, in, in in really rough shape with the ten people. No, no more than gatherings of ten people. <laughs> the Jets pick eleventh. I'm hoping they get one of the offensive tackles. They're all really good. There's four of them. We certainly need them. So as long as one of them's there at eleven, I'm fine. I am not one to comment much on fashion. I will say this on uniforms, though. The top and the bottoms should not be the same color. It drives me crazy. You need some <laughs> contrast there. When you yes. look, when you wear all white, you you look weird. When you look, wear all dark, you you look like Batman. It just it just doesn't work. And uh, just have a little contrast there. And yes, have one home and one away. It drives me crazy. Just because Phil Knight's a U of Oregon <laughs> alum doesn't mean that uh, everybody's got to go crazy. But uh, Jim, you never know whether this will be a legendary draft or not. Uh, you think of legendary drafts. You think of 1983 when you had John Elway and. Dan Marino and Jim Kelly, and of course the uh, the legendary Ken O'Brien drafted that year for the New York Jets. Uh, 2004 was another one, not quite as illustrious as that class, but you had Eli Manning and Ben Roethlisberger and the aforementioned uh, Philip Rivers. But it's not just NFL drafts. Um, you know, 2004 was a big year in the conservative reporter and blogger draft as well. <laughs> and uh, prepare yourself for the world's worst William F. Buckley Jr. impression. But here is apparently what happened with that draft 16 years ago. 
He said this, uh, the intellectual notion of armed forces conscription, more colloquially known as the draft, uh, originated most likely in ancient Mesopotamia. It was seen again in <laughs> Babylonian times when laborers owed military service to the great Hammurabi. Through the centuries, the practice was adopted in many other societies, including our own Western culture during the travesty known as the French Revolution, and even here in the United States. Conscription, of course, is anathema to liberty. It acts as the heavy hand of government athwart the aspirations of a free people, and only in the most dire circumstances ought to be contemplated. Oh, 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 quite right. With the first pick in the 2004 <laughs> conservative reporter and blogger draft, National Review proudly selects Jim Garrity. Greg, I am wowed. I, I, first of all, I like listeners. I think we can tell what staying at home is doing to Greg. Uh, <laughs> um, that is not quite the way it went, but like just in, in for, I assume that took preparation, Greg. I don't think you could rattle that off off the top of your head, but man, in whatever time you thought of that, you did better than like 90 some percent of the Saturday Night Live sketches over the past 10 years. And now I'm sitting there thinking, why did we not do William F. Buckley hosts the NFL draft? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, mean, I know that uh, Dana Carvey once did George F. Will's Sports Machine. That was hilarious. Uh, which was uh, him doing a trivia contest with Lasorda and Mike Schmidt. <laughs> and the idea that they could barely understand what he was asking and all the questions and all that stuff. But uh, really well done, Greg. Uh, I, I didn't quite go like that, but uh, I, I like to imagine that it did. So. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, certainly they could uh, they could put you up in the in the Hall of Fame, but you've got many many active years left. So uh, enjoy that. Congratulations to National Review Online for an excellent selection back in the day. Uh, Jim, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Also, leave us a kind review with five stars, and please join us Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. <laughs>